Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Non-alcoholic craft beer is a fairly familiar concept these days, Taplines listeners, but it wasn't always that way. After all, alcoholic craft beer only really hit its stride about a decade and a half ago, as indie sleaze gave way to the stomp-clap mason jar aesthetic, and mainstream Gen X and millennial drinkers developed a taste for full-flavored alternatives to light adjunct lagers. The segment was still booming through much of the 2010s, unlike it is now in the early 2020s, and craft brewers are making good and sometimes great money making lagers and ales at all sorts of ABVs. Why would they bother making them with no functional ABV whatsoever? Who would even drink them? Of course, a few years later, it seemed self-evident that there was latent demand in the American drinking public for a non-alcoholic version of the IPAs, stouts, and so forth that had grown ubiquitous on supermarket shelves. But when Bill Schufelt and John Walker first put their heads together in a warehouse in Stratford, Connecticut in late 2017 to begin fine-tuning the product, process, and branding on a project that would become Athletic Brewing Company, that was anything but clear. Athletic wasn't the first non-alcoholic beer brand, not by a long shot, but it was the first to successfully cross the flavors and aesthetics of the craft segment consistently and at scale. Its considerable success since first hitting the market in mid-2018 has helped open up horizons for millions of drinkers and provided a template for alcoholic craft brewers looking to diversify their portfolios in the face of slower growth on the ABV-positive side of things. Today, co-founder Schufelt and Walker joined Taplines to talk about Athletic Brewing Company's remarkable evolution from skepticism-inducing startup to the only craft brand in the top five best-selling non-alcoholic beers in the country. The rest are all non-alcoholic clones of macros, like Budweiser and Heineken, of course. It's Bill Schufelt and John Walker, it's Athletic Brewing Company, it's how non-alcoholic beer got cool, and it's all right here right now. On Vine Pairs Taplines. That's right, Taplines listener. Today we have a couple firsts here on the podcast, the Modern Beer History Podcast on the Vine Pairs Podcast Network. It's the first time that we're going to be talking about non-alcoholic beer on the podcast. You know, we 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 mostly focus on the alcoholized version of this beverage we're also interested in. And another first, uh, I'll be joined by not one but two guests. For this episode, and I know, you know, sort of everyone's wondering out there as you're listening, who could he be talking to? Uh, Non-alcoholic beer in two guests, not one, but two. Uh, That's right. I'm joined by Bill Schufel and John Walker, the co-founders of Athletic Brewing Company, who uh, you might know their beer, you might know their brand, you might know them personally. They've done a tremendous amount of work to mainstream uh, non-alcoholic beer as a full-flavored option in the beverage pantheon. Guys, welcome to uh, welcome to Taplines. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dave. Really excited to be here. Appreciate all your support and Vine Pair support over the years. Well, we're glad to uh, we're glad to have you. We're going to be doing a trip down memory lane, as you know. Uh, on Taplines, we look at different moments in modern beer history. We all fo- we focus on post-prohibition stuff because. Uh, listeners don't care about what happened pre-prohibition. It was a dark time. Uh, we came out the other end 
and uh, the beer industry, you know, sort of continue to pace. We're today going to be looking, us three, at a, a relatively recent development in American beer history uh, that makes it no less historic, by the way. Um, but it's it's the rise of, you know, craft non-alcoholic beer. Um, and I think, you know, there is a segment that's, you know, sort of formed. And, and I think Athletic Brewing Company has done a tremendous amount of work, as I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, to help form that segment, to help create sort of what the American drinking public thinks of now as non-alcoholic craft beer. Um, so we're going to be talking today about how that came to be, Athletic's role in that sort of market shift or that opportunity that sort of emerged, um, you know, midway through last decade to to really find a drinker who is interested in the flavors of craft beer, um, but not necessarily interested in the alcohol. Um, and talk about, you know, sort of your guys' experience, boots on the ground, uh, as you as you go through and build the company that would become Athletic Brewing Company, developing the processes, uh, looking around at the landscape and figuring out, you know, hey, is there a there there? Do people actually want this stuff? We think it's pretty cool. Is this something that people are going to pay money for? We want to hear it all, man. But before we do, uh, maybe we could just, you know, start with uh, how you two met each other. How did this partnership, this co-founding partnership first come to be? Yeah, I, w- I would say through a lot of rejection and <laughs> a lot of no's and um, literally hundreds of no's until um, we found each other. Um, it is funny you mentioned prohibition in the lead up. Um, most people don't really think of non-alcoholic beer as emerging out of prohibition, but non-alcoholic beer in many ways got such a tough start because it came out of prohibition mm. and it really didn't need to be anything special. Everything else was regulated away. So there was just this near beer, inferior product. And it had such a terrible reputation because it was that and it didn't evolve for 80 years until then. Yeah. Um, really until John took a crack at totally transforming the quality and perception of what it could be. Um, yeah. I would say prior to meeting up, it was it was basically like this was such a clear need in my life as someone who loves beer, loves good food, loves all the social situations around beer and food. Mm. But I no longer wanted the alcohol in those situations and all of a sudden, I found myself as such an outsider to the world. Um, and yeah, really, I I talked to hundreds of people before I um, met John on a pro brewer like web forum. Um, but yeah, I'll let John describe it from his perspective there. Yeah, uh, being non-alcoholic wasn't necessarily in the in the job posting, um, <laughs> and so uh, I learned that on the phone call after Bill. Uh, responded to my inquiry, but yeah, it was yeah. the most, it was the most, I remember the ad, I, I remember it titled beautifully. It was like the most innovative sector in craft. And I was like, boom, love it. Um, and then we got on the phone he's like, wait, wait, wait. he's like, don't hang up, but it's, it's non-alcoholic. <laughs> um, what was probably ironic for him, um, was that I kind of, I got it. Um, I grew up in a household with non-alcoholic beer around me. I grew up in the food and beverage industry. Uh, some of my earliest beer memories were my dad chugging a non-alcoholic beer after a run. I'm just talking about like how replenishing and refreshing it was. Um, so, you know, it, it made sense when he was like, I want to make craft non-alcoholic beer taste good. Mm. I was like, oh, that makes sense. Um, but I was like, I don't know where we're going to begin. And it just so happened. Bill had spent two years thinking about where we might be beginning. 
So when so when does this happen, Bill? If I remember, I went back and because I've interviewed you a few times before, and John, you and I have spoken once on the phone. I think at least once on the phone before. But Bill, I, I'm thinking through like my old reporting. If I remember correctly, you stopped drinking personally in 2013. Is that uh, yep. thereabouts? Yeah. So when did the wheels start turning for you? That uh, you know, even upstream of this pro brewer, I love the fact that you guys met on an internet forum. Like I feel like that can either like go tremendously well or tremendously poorly once you like go and meet people <laughs> yep. in real life from online. I've had a few of each experience myself. But uh, before the the post, Bill, like your wheels had already been turning because to your point, you felt like there was a need there. Um, describe the early pre-John Walker sort of gestation period before athletic brewing had a name or had a, had a, a you know, a, a flagship product like what, what did those earliest days look like for, for what would become the brand? Yeah. So my love of beer, like, so I, I loved domestic beers and mm. like value beer growing up in high school, like volume drinking for ABV basically. Right. And college parties as many people. But I did go to college in the very early 2000s in Vermont where I was lucky enough to have an incredible craft brewery right down the street um, in Otter Creek, but also Magic Hat, Long Trail, and a number of others were like coming up in Vermont at that time. And so sure. we had incredible access to craft beer in that area. And so during the week in college, we started to drink really good craft beer. And that absolutely blew my mind and fell in love with it. And But about 10 years ago, as I was turning 30, about to get married, taking my career very seriously, my fitness and long-term health seriously – Alcohol just wasn't a fit anymore in my life. Um, and so I was cutting back and then went to stop completely. But like I immediately – I was still in all the bars, in all the restaurants, at all the weddings. I was driving my friends to craft breweries and there would be nothing on the menu for me. And it almost immediately it started like occurring to me that there is a huge unmet need in the customer base mm. and – not and very few people drank as much alcohol or as frequently as I did. Um, you know, sixty percent of Americans don't have a drink in any given week, and it's like there's a huge occasion base on the table, and that started to like blow my mind. And I start to share it with friends and my wife, and like share the idea. And it was my wife who recognized that as an idea um, after complaining at dinner after dinner about the options. Um, <laughs> but yeah. It, so it was about nine years ago in the end of December 2014 that my wife like actually pointed out the idea to me in what I was saying. And then I did two years of research on the idea, reading every brewing textbook I could get my hands on, joining every guild like the BA that I could, um, just start to educate myself on the sector. And I had never brewed a batch of beer um, before I resigned from my job on January 1st, 2017. And you know, the next six months after that were basically trying to really engross myself in the industry, talk to participants, go to the go to CBC, for example, and try to meet people out there. And really, it was just totally striking out like mm. hundreds of conversations and no one wanted to contract brew our beer. No suppliers wanted to talk to us, um, which I totally get. It's like in hindsight, like contract brewing wasn't a fit for us. We didn't have a recipe. We didn't have a method and they didn't have the equipment. And so it's <laughs> you had none like, of the components necessary to contract brew. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day. So probably <laughs> saved me and John a fair amount of time by not taking our phone calls on that. Um, 
But yeah, once John teamed up, I basically flew down to meet him in person as quickly as I could at that point, and we kind of hit it off from there. Where, uh, refresh my memory, or, or for the listeners that don't know, John, you were in the Southwest at that point, right? New Mexico, maybe? Yeah, I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and okay. I was brewing beer at a Second Street Brewery. Okay. There. And alcoholic beer, obviously, and you'd been brewing, you know, in the traditional craft, well, at that point, what was traditional for craft, right? Just the normal yep. alcoholic mode. Um, yep. So you answer this this uh, pro-brewer forum post, you get on the phone, this guy named Bill Schufelt's on the other end, he lets you know, hey, we're going to be talking about non-alcoholic beer. You had some personal experience, like you mentioned your, your father uh, maybe was tapped into this idea of non-alcoholic beer as, you know, a nourishing, replenishing beverage. Do you remember what the brand was or what the what the popular brands were when you were growing up? Uh, for some listeners who don't remember the dark ages of pre-non-alcoholic craft beer, O'Doul's is the one that comes to mind for everyone. But there were, there were a handful on the shelf, right, back then? Yeah, yeah, there were... Yeah, I remember O'Doul's growing up. That was usually the one that was around. Yeah, but, you know, there are a couple of, I think, colors come to mind more than yeah, more than right. brands. It was like right. there, was a, there was a brown bottle, there was a green bottle. And it was always like in that <laughs> a blue. There's a blue label too, right? Caliber, yeah. I think, was blue. Yeah, yeah. So there were a few that were kind of like in the, e you know, the ether more or less. And you can always find them. Bill, you have a, uh, one of, I think, the most enviable sound bites in all of, the, you know, beer media, uh, you've come up with a really good way to describe it and it makes it into basically every piece of coverage that athletic has ever gotten. I I've noticed over the years, penalty box beers, which I think is such a clever way to describe them, right? Like you wind up, you know, drinking this type, this brand, the O'Doul's or the caliber or whatever, whatever the brand is. And you're, you're kind of at a, uh, you know, you're you're not having fun at the party, or you're marked as as the guy who's you know who's taking a break from the party, which I always thought was such a clever way to to describe the landscape of non alcoholic beer at this time. So that's where you guys are coming from. You start talking, uh, you know, you're you're developing the idea for athletic brewing. You now like formed a partnership. Where does it go from there? How does how does this progress into you know an actual company? We. Immediately start homebrewing on Gatorade jugs. It's uh, I mean, John, like credit to like I I quit a job, but I stayed local. Yeah. I didn't have a family. Um, John had a one year old and five year old, and picked up and moved across the country to homebrew in an empty warehouse with someone he didn't know for nine months and talk just like talk about nothing but non alcoholic beer, which is a pretty funny concept. But also, we were so lucky to have. To like be able to build the company on a great foundation um, where everything was able to be intentional. We did have such a long runway of planning mm. and testing that we really got to know each other well. We dug into what we wanted in our employee handbook, our mission statement. We built all our OSHA manuals and things like that. Like a lot of foundational things that are very often left behind in businesses that just launch MVPs and get out the door. Um and we spent a lot of time talking about what we want the long-term vision of the company to be. Um, and so I feel very fortunate to that time in getting to know John so well because basically since then, we've I've been running the outside world of the company. John's been running the production facilities and all the quality. And it, we've had really good kind of um, split of responsibilities in the company. But we've been off and running in different directions most of the company's history. And so having that foundational time to really get to know each other, I think, was pretty formative. Yeah. 
John, describe that from your perspective. As Bill mentioned, I mean, he because this you guys produced even back then. You were you uh, was it the Stratford facility? Where was the original yeah. facility? Still in Stratford? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, Bill, you're relatively close. You you were a Fairfield County, Connecticut guy. So this is in your literal neck of the woods. Uh, John, from your perspective, uh, it's across the country. Tell us what that looked like for you. I mean, on a personal level, that's just incredibly disruptive. You know, we're talking about a disruptive company here, but we're also talking about at the very beginning, you're disrupting your life to be a part of that company. Uh, what was that like, man? Um, it, it was, well, you know, there wasn't, there was some comfort there. So I grew up in Connecticut mm. um, and my whole family was up here, which was definitely appealing. Um Sorry, I get sidetracked. I'm looking at the five-gallon things that Bill and I were brewing on. There's a 900-barrel tank rolling down the street right now. Um, <laughs> a little bit of an upgrade. We are putting in 20 enormous fermenters this month wow. to be online for next summer. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I wanted to come back to this area. And then Bill's concept was honestly intriguing and really it captured everything about the beer industry that I really liked. It was scientific it was hands-on it was creative it was culinary it was very inviting and warming and welcoming and you know i thought to be able to make it all of those things for more people and to bring new products like truly innovative new products into the category was really exciting and you know bill's thesis early on was like you know we're going to make this our own way it's going to be unique it's going to taste great and we're not going to ship anything until it's you know polished and ready to go and so all those things lined up really well with me and what I wanted as a as an individual, as a creative, you know, person mm-hmm. who was in brewing. And so those things were really exciting. Um, but yeah, we landed here in September of 2017. Bill had ordered a three and a half barrel pilot system, had it shipped to the brewery, and you know the the brewery. It was a warehouse with yeah, tires yeah. in it. Um, <laughs> And it's like, we, you can't just like plug this thing in, right? So I was like, I think we got to take a step back and kind of break this down to fundamentals. And, you know, that's where we have the carboys and, and the orange jugs and my homemade kettle. And so we just tore down brewing, down to the fundamentals, you know, looked at every single ingredient, how to work with it and what it meant to, you know, how we could use those components to craft a finished non-alcoholic beer. Mm-hmm. That September 2017 is when you get to Connecticut and you start getting hands-on with the product. Bill, you mentioned nine months of, of runway. So we would be what? And then August, tw- July 2018, when does the first product first ship? So John and I met in May 2018. Um, 2017, yeah. Oh, 2017, sorry. Um, and pretty much like right from when we first met in person, I'd say like, the emails started and like the collaboration started and John probably was immediately terrified. He was like, (laughs) Oh my goodness, this, this guy sends 500 emails a day as a living. And (laughs) it's pretty much been our company culture ever since. But, um, it, it was just so fun to have someone to collaborate with. Um, and I was traveling around looking at brewery sites, looking at equipment, scouting what the eventual 20 barrel system would look like. Um, and so when, John landed in Connecticut. Basically, we were ready to start home brewing and mm-hmm. had like done some theorizing. We launched commercially May twelfth, twenty eighteen, but we weren't like really ready for production until June of twenty eighteen. So it was uh, the beer started to taste 
better in like December of 2017 after like three months, four months of intensive trials. And then John moved the homebrew setup to his parents' garage actually in Madison. And so he was brewing there and we were packaging bottles by hand in the garage. And I was taking them all around the state and New England, sharing them with retailers and talking to them. Um, and during that time, we did construction for three or four months of the brewery with a construction crew. Tanks got delivered in March 2018. So once they were dialed in, John got to um, scaling up our process on those tanks. And then we were kind of like, we really wanted to be out for the summer. Yeah. Um, like definitely a most receptive time to not only launch into independence, but also to be able to sample our product pretty effectively for the summer. So um, we are also probably just putting ourselves on totally unnecessary timelines, to be honest. But that's, I guess, kind of just what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you <laughs> first started doing the research, Bill, even be back before you started, before you met up with John, you mentioned that you started like digging into brewing textbooks. You started going to guilds. You know, you were kind of trying to school yourself up. Had you done any home brewing at that point by yourself, or did you? So you were never producing beer even at small in small batches until you got John into the warehouse to kind of help you, you know, steer you through that process. Is that right? Right. Yeah. It was yeah. like honestly totally idiotic that I would resign from my job at that point. I um, mean, it's intense, you know, I, man. I, yeah. I, I I think I very could have easily kept the job until like John and I were like really working. Yeah. Like, like I quit. And it's like, well, you didn't have yeah. to, man. You could have just, you know, <laughs> yeah. dialed back on hours a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So it's it was kind of like a burn the boats moment sure, for sure. sure. Um there were like all these moments though where, you know, someone from the industry would engage or um I remember a team for a large brewing company in Germany at one point engaged and like I was so excited to wake up at 3 a.m. before work and talk to them mm. about like what goes into a non-alcoholic brewery, like what would it potentially scope to build and I remember taking it far enough where I got like a $32 million quote to build a non-alcoholic brewery. And I was like, huh. oh my goodness, <laughs> another route. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's a lot of money for anyone. It's especially a lot of money for a uh, two-man crew here with, uh, you know, a product, <laughs> a product that's still in development at that point. Holy smokes, man. Yeah. To be clear, we raised less than 10% of that to build our first <laughs> brewery and, um, it was an amazing team of angel investors who, um, you know, none of our investors really got to taste the beer before they invested either. Um, most were coming online just on narrative and John and I's enthusiasm. We did something like 120 investor meetings in the second half of 2017 Wow! to raise the money to build our brewery. Um, and then it's been that same group of investors who has, they came back time and time again, um, for our series A, our series B, and they, a lot of those investors contributed to our series C and series D as well. So they've helped us build incrementally large breweries all along the way. Let's talk a little bit about that aspect of building athletic brewing company, because like at this moment, we're talking about late 2017, you know, mid 2018, whatever this sort of back half of the like last decade, you know, the 2010s, 2010s, whatever you want to call it is in hindsight what looks to be a high watermark for the second craft beer boom, right? Like you go from uh, 1,600, 1,800 breweries at the beginning of the decade, you're coming up on 
7,500 towards the end of the day, you know, by 2018 or so, there's just an enormous groundswell of excitement and attention around sort of alcoholic craft beer as uh, a really exciting economic success story, a culinary success story. There's just a lot of these narratives that I think are really positive. Now, gosh, I mean, just five years later, that sounds like, man, uh, I can't, you know, uh, that feels a lot longer ago, right? But there was this moment where there's just an enormous amount of excitement around alcoholic craft beer. I'm curious, like when you guys were going out and have 120 investor meetings, uh, what was the halo effect, if at all, from the excitement around alcoholic craft beer when you guys were going out and trying to pitch uh, non-alcoholic craft beer, which at that time, that was not a phrase that a lot of people were talking about. I mean, you say that, you know, these investors were coming on on narrative more than they were on taste, which is a tremendous, you know, testament to the narrative that you guys were creating. Um, but what, what was your sense having been across the table from all of those, you know, early potential investors, what the appetite was for, you know, this segment that barely existed at that point. Tell us a little bit about the dynamic that you guys saw between alcoholic craft beer and what you guys were hoping to build into non-alcoholic craft beer. Yeah. I, so I, I think there was a big difference between a lot of the narrative was around, like, there's a huge difference between what the consumer wants mm. and what the industry is offering right now. Mm -hmm. And, we just saw it as a huge opportunity for craft beer to keep growing into bigger and bigger audiences and occasions. Um, and like our goal has never been to stand on a soapbox and say alcohol is bad. Our goal is to say you can love the taste of this and drink it any night of the week, any hour of the day you want. Or even if you if you drink, it's for you. If you don't drink, it's for you. If you're driving, it's for you. If you're with your kids, it's for you. Um, and I had the survey work to back that up. I think it was one of the most powerful parts of our angel investor deck was every survey I ran, you know, you had non-alcoholic beer was 0.3% of the beer category at the time. So basically rounding error to zero, it was not marketed, not consumed or anything. But any survey I ran, it would be upwards of 50% of people said they would drink it with some frequency, whether that's like regularly, sometimes infrequently. But even if like 15% of people are saying, I drink it infrequently. That's a big upgrade from where the category was. Mm. So you had people saying they're ready for it as long as it tasted good and didn't carry the stigma. So John and I knew, knew we had a quality and a marketing challenge. Um, and I think that kind of proved out. Once we started putting the beer on the shelf in Whole Foods and like uh, the early retailers that took a bet on us, um, it it blew off the shelf basically. Mm -hmm. When you guys are, you know, you, you said you first started doing production, you know, uh, in June 2018 or so after kind of getting that initial round out in May 2018. When does it first, you know, Bill, you, you mentioned sort of going around the state and having conversations with, you know, retailers and, and distributors and, and whoever would listen, I'm sure, saying, hey, we've got this product. When does it first start to click a little bit when do you guys see uptake in a way that's like hey like maybe we didn't just waste you know the last 12 months of our lives on something that's crazy or bill in your case the last three years of our lives on something that's crazy when does it start to say you know you guys start to see like oh maybe there's something here to me it always feels like a series of plateaus and sprints mm. um but like the sprints are just like impossible to keep up with um <laughs> and I, I know we've had a number of those um 
John, you may have a different answer, but I think the first one was right around probably early 2019. We hadn't even gotten to the summer yet, and we had basically outgrown the brewery. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think I, I, there, and then also our first distributor uh, was Star dis- Distributors here in Connecticut, and I remember them coming in and being like, you know what, this is going to crush it. And to have that like unsolicited feedback was was kind of uh, validating and really exciting. I was also, you know, not sure if he was right in the head at the time, <laughs> but I was like, I was like, I, I want you to be right. I'm yeah. really excited for this for you to be right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. That's <laughs> it's like yeah. Cool. This is great feedback, man. Like, are you stable? Like, does this? You know, <laughs> I like that. Um, when you, when you launch, uh, commercially in 2018, what is the, what's the beer that you launch with? What would the portfolio look like at this point for athletic? It are run wild IPA and upside down golden. Gotcha. So two skews. What's the, what's the mix that you guys, it was just like a, tw- a variety 12 pack or are you guys just doing 12 packs of each of those? What was the setup? Six packs of each. Six packs. Got it. Yeah. Of each. So when... This is happening, uh, like I mentioned just a moment ago, craft brewing, you know, sort of as an industry or as a segment is experiencing what in hindsight would be, you know, the the best um, or even maybe a bit of downslope on, on what was the best, you know, part of uh, the big second boom for craft brewing as non or as uh, as craft alcoholic craft beer starts to sort of plateau, starts to lose some of the momentum, um, you know, we see you know, slowing growth. And then we see, you know, flat to slightly down growth more recently in 2023, we'll, we'll finish the year, you know, slightly down, uh, the craft segment will finish slightly down. That's not the trajectory that non-alcoholic craft beer has been on. And what I wanted to get your guys take on is, you know, as you are working and there are other listeners, surely, you know, there are other non-alcoholic craft breweries in the country that athletic is not the only one it's it's a pioneering one um and they're you know there's a small but growing cohort of other operators that are um aiming to do similar things to what you guys are doing in the marketplace or build out this segment more and we've also of course more recently seen um you know a new interest or newfound or revitalized interest from macro brewers who have always offered non-alcoholic product um but are starting to maybe take the category take the segment um a little bit more seriously but um you know what i wanted to kind of frame up is as alcoholic craft beer uh starts to kind of slow up and we see you know, changing tastes, you know, drinkers are going to start shifting in 2018, early 2019, looking towards hard seltzers, looking towards, you know, trading up and out to spirits, some of these trends that we've talked about. Um, That doesn't change the tremendous uh, amount of growth on a a small base, but still a significant amount of growth that non-alcoholic craft beer is experiencing in that time. And so, what I was hoping to, you know, get your guys' perspective on is what that's like to be building a business in a what turns out to be a red hot subsegment of a segment that's kind of slowing right around the time that you guys are really hitting your stride. Yeah. So there's a lot of like incredibly fortunate circumstances of our company history and then near impossible things also. Mm. Um 
if you look back at the last five years in the world, it's one of the craziest times of operating a business. It's just like so tumultuous and random and very hard lessons learned about, you know, um, yeah, early on, it definitely helped as we were like starting to raise money and think about this idea that the sound bites from 2016 were basically like craft breweries are selling for a billion dollars. This is how right. to, to value your brewery when you're talking to banks. It's generally a thousand dollars a barrel or like whatever, like there people were basically drawing lines from Ballast Point and Lagunitas to like how to value <laughs> your business. And like, so yes, the beer world sloped off a little bit at that point, but, um, we were able to, that kind of mentality around it helps. And then we were able to show like we are the next, mm. um, but then also, you know, we built an incredibly capital intensive manufacturing business um over the last few years uh, we've built four breweries in five years but oftentimes multi-year stages within those um so it's really helped that it was a very low interest rate environment for the beginning of that at least and so that's been helpful and that kind of counteracts like just how difficult like the covid period was the supply chain crises of 2021 the inflation has been, um, you know, John and I built the company to about 90 people before we had an HR department or a finance department. And we're basically wearing all the hats um, at, at different times. So it's every challenge has been so unique along the way, but really fun. Tell me a little bit about scaling, John, when you guys start having success. You know, we mentioned before scaling from, you know, the homebrew setup into uh, how many barrels you guys start with on the first setup that you guys had? Um, so we had, we had our three and a half barrel pilot system and then a 20 barrel production system. Okay. So you scale to that, obviously that's your first step and you've got to sort of maintain recipe integrity and that's not just a linear process, right? You have to tinker with it and make sure that you're sort of make, making sure that things are coming through at volume in the same way that you want them to, you know, on the smaller mm -hmm. setup. What is it like to start scaling across much bigger systems and much different, you know, sort of breadth than you'd ever worked with before on the non-alcoholic side of things. Tell us a little bit, you know, from the technical perspective, some of the challenges um, and how you guys muddled through them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, when you're starting out and, you know, you've got no business and no credit necessarily, it's hard to even get ingredients. So just being able to buy ingredients was awesome. Um, that was like an exciting first step. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, cause even then you're like, Oh, starting a non-alcoholic brewery. And they're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Cash on delivery. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, seriously. So, you know, that was like one step and I was like, all right, we're making headway. Um, but I, you know, the scaling I think is where brewing gets really fun and really collaborative because when you're scaling things, it takes, it's all hands. There's, you know, facilities teams, there's people who know about pumps and geometries and flow rates. And then you're talking to quality teams who know how to scale things up on the quality side. Um, because, you know, like you said, not everything translates linearly, um, especially when you're talking about like kinetics and things like that. So, you know, I think as far as scaling where it comes down, like for us, it was all about the team and I don't, I don't want to say it was easy because nothing that we do or have done has been easy, mm -hmm. but all of the amazing people that we have on our team has made it really doable. Um, and we're also, you know, we're not so proud as to say, like, we don't make mistakes and we own those mistakes. And when we make them, we 
get rid of it, learn from it, move on and continue. And so, you know, we're kind of in a environment of, I guess, continuous improvement. Um, our whole team operates that way. So, you know, it's, it's been a challenge, but really exciting all the while. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, we're starting from five gallon jugs right behind Bill and going from nothing to that was really, really challenging and took a couple months. And now we're going from, you know, 20 barrel system to filling 900 barrel tanks. Wow. What about the mistakes? I mean, obviously brewing is an iterative process. You guys, in batch after batch, you're tweaking, you're tweaking. Take us through one of the early challenges, maybe as you guys are, you know, 2018, 2019, you've got a real product. People are, you know, enjoying it. It's, it's selling. Uh, I'm sure you hit speed bumps. I'm sure you hit sort of walls where you don't know how to troubleshoot. Maybe there aren't as many. In fact, we know there aren't as many, you know, sort of peers in the non-alcoholic segment that you can turn to and say, hey, how did you guys, you know, we've got tainted beer here. We've got too much diacetyl over on this batch and, and we just can't fix this problem. Have you guys encountered this before? Uh, hey, how did you sort this out? Right. That's something that we know brewers large and small are able to do. They they're able to lean on one another, even in a much more competitive environment towards the end of last decade and into this one. Um one of the things I wanted to to understand, and, and I think our listeners would be interested to understand, is, you know, non-alcoholic beer existed before you guys came along. And, and, you know, yes, there are facilities that were doing it, but there weren't that many colleagues that you could tap to say, hey, like, how did you sort this problem out in a non-alcoholic, you know, platform, in a non-alcoholic fluid? Like, tell us a little bit about how that worked, John, like it strikes me as maybe a little bit more challenging than just troubleshooting uh, a batch that just wouldn't go or troubleshooting a recipe that just wasn't stacking up on the alcoholic side of things. There's that added element um, of just not having a lot of institutional knowledge. Is that accurate? And if so, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, no, it's very, very accurate. Um, And, you know, I think from a brewing perspective, we've, you know, got all the all the people in the world to talk to amazing brewers all over the country that we know. Um, and, you know, we can talk about ingredients and processes and things like that, where non-alcoholic brewing is separate from that, from normal brewing um, or alcoholic brewing, is that it's more of a food product than it is a beer. Mm. And so there are not that many brewers who are also proficient in things like food safety. And so that was probably one of the larger hurdles that, you know, we had to deal with early on. And we were very proactive um, you know, little applause for, you know, having to deal with this at that time. But Bill and I both went to URI to do a, a course in PCQI. So we we're food safety certified. Um, so understanding those Valentine's Day. Uh, <laughs> you guys went to do a food safety course together on Valentine's Day? Yeah, doesn't everybody? How are how yeah, are like either of you still day, married? <laughs> it was like a three day intensive yeah, food safety degree. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, that was probably one of the hardest ones. And then, you know, part of our process, and, you know, we speak to this freely, is that tunnel pasteurization is like the biggest critical, mm. or one of the biggest critical control points for processing non-alcoholic beer, because you can, you know, make sure that that finished product in its finished vessel is good for the duration of its life. And there were no books. There were no articles there was no institutional knowledge about how to do that effectively. All of the machines that were being produced were, you know, coming from Eastern Europe and there were language barriers, even though there were doctorates in pasteurization over there. So 
you know, there were some struggles there. And then, um, but, you know, we learned, we read a lot. We wound up working with uh, our first regulator who licensed our facility. Again, this is where it comes back to the amazing teammates. Our first regulator who licensed us in Stratford was, you know, open to taking on a role at Athletic to help us make sure that our food safety parameters were really spot on. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Bill can probably tell that that one big first full truckload story that was maybe our first hurdle (laughs) or or speed bump. Well, to add to what John was saying, too, um, I was just talking to Russ, who um, just had his five-year anniversary with us, um, who's overseen our lab program uh, since he joined us, but was laughing about, like, how tough some of the early meetings were. Like, it'd be something would go terribly wrong in a batch. We generally have no idea what went wrong. We'd be dumping it unquestionably. But me, John, and Russ would be sitting around a table with either like printouts or textbooks trying to figure out where to start. (laughs) And it was just like very difficult. And we, it almost wasn't worth it to brew again until we got to the bottom of it. Um, And we didn't know how many trials it would take to get over it. And um, so really thankful to those teammates who joined on and went through a lot of those things. Um, But yeah, a commitment to quality unquestionably is something we've communicated to to our investors since day one. We're like, we are eventually going to get very good at this, but we'll probably have to pour a lot more beer than most people down the drains until then. And so anytime something doesn't taste right, doesn't test right, or it's close, we've had an unquestionable down the drains policy and destruction policy. And I think that suited the company and customers really well along the way. Is it easier to dispose of non-alcoholic beer because there's no alcohol in it? Obviously, you maybe are you able to just dump it down the drain without any further like waste treatment? Yeah, I mean, all of our facilities handle wastewater. You know, we remove solids and treat gotcha. it before it gets to the city. Yeah, um, yep. as long as you catch it before it gets into the cans. Right. <laughs> Once it's in the cans, is. Just a whole different amount of labor for us. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah, that's you're you're through the looking glass at that point. And speaking of that, like the story John just mentioned, um, even though we invest a lot into our facilities, we've always operated the business on like a real shoestring mm-hmm. budget. And so we had the business forecasted out for the next six months to like get off the ground. And our first full truckload shipment ever, um, you know, I walked into the brewery and John was like, we got to destroy it. I don't want to ship it. Uh, it's not up to our standards. And I was like, whoa, this is like basically financial viability here. Because um, we don't have, it was already in cans yeah. on pallets, yeah. ready to go into a truck. We needed that revenue to bridge the next three months of bills. And we we just crunched it. Yeah. So it, it poured out all the cans. What did was, that feel like? It was a really, just to, uh, I guess from the moment John said it, I knew it was the right thing. Um and, you know, it's it's kind of just moving swiftly at the hard decisions. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, pretty scary. Um, updating investors, raising an emergency bridge financing. Um, you know, it's uh, – I'm very thankful that John and I came into this business with, like, totally complementary skills. Um, you know, my main job has been to keep the lights on as we scale. Um, and that was definitely one of those instances in keeping the lights on. Wow. That is pretty intense, man. I mean, of course, uh, uh, craft breweries on the alcoholic side of things, they dump beer. Uh, I'm sure a lot of craft breweries on the alcoholic side of things have the same or similar stories where they have had to 86 a whole batch and it's really awful and, and could be, you know, financially damaging. I have to imagine that 
this was maybe, I think it's just remarkable that every step of the way, like the things that happen to athletic, like there's just no real comp for them in, in the segment that you guys are, you know, growing, not entirely by yourselves, but mostly by yourselves, right? Like there's, there's not like, Oh, look, uh, such and such brewery, like had to do this, but they were fine. You know, it's like, well, like there's not like a whole lot of others that, you know, you can point to and be like, Hey, this business model works. Don't worry if we have to, you know, eat a truckload here or there, like there's a way through. I, I have to imagine that that, you know, feels maybe a little bit more existential when, you know, you're doing it uh, with so few other examples of it having worked elsewhere. I, I, I think it makes it easy too, though. <laughs> because, Tell me how. <laughs> well, it because, you know, if we're going to be successful, we have to be shipping good product. And if the product isn't good, people aren't going to buy it. And if you're the only one or one of few that's trying to build this category and market, like it's on you. And so, you know, the answer is easy. Yeah. It's either, you know, you grow the category with great products or you don't build a category. This segues very nicely into the sort of, I think, the question that I'm most curious about as someone who reports on the industry, hopefully our listeners will find it interesting as well. But there is this question of growing the business versus growing the segment, right? And we know, uh, or if you've if you followed the trajectory of the American craft brewing industry over the course of the past two decades, you know that there's a real sort of push around um, rising tide lifts all boats is a, is a phrase you used to hear all the time. Um, you don't hear it as much as any, anymore in the, in the American craft brewing segment, but you did for a while, right? This idea that we need to teach people what craft beer is because the more drinkers that understand what it is, even if they're not buying our beer, you know, like they, they're, they're buying the cat, you know, into the segment and that's just going to be better for everybody. And I think that there's merit to that certainly. And, um, you know, for a while, I think that was the dynamic, the prevailing dynamic in the craft brewing industry. Um, there's also this question, you know, as you sort of, uh, non-alcoholic craft beer isn't the exact same. It's not a one-to-one comparison, but there's the question of, the additional food safety component of it that you mentioned earlier. And this is what I'm getting at is that this idea that, you know, sort of we're building the brand and we're building the segment, but it strikes me that non-alcoholic craft beer um, has some additional uh, and, and quite serious uh, requirements when it comes to production quality and standards than alcoholic craft beer does, right? Like an alcoholic IPA, if it's no good, okay, like that sucks and I just wasted $8 on it, $10 on it, whatever, and maybe I'm turned away from the category or the style a little bit or whatever, but I don't have botulism, you know, like I don't, I didn't, you know, like I'm not vomiting, right? Like there's, but food safety, because there's no alcohol in non-alcoholic craft beer, of course, is right in the name, you have a less of a safety net in terms of, or like there's, there's, uh, there's one less line of defense and it's an important line of defense from preventing drinkers from drinking tainted product that can actually harm them. And what I was hoping to hear from you guys as, you know, folks who have been working on this problem, both from a business standpoint and from a food safety standpoint, is how that dynamic plays out in how you think about your responsibility, not only to athletics, you know, customers, but also to non-alcoholic craft brewing as a segment. Yeah. Um, I, I would say John and I have always viewed it as we are, we consider ourselves members of the industry, not only in its current form today, mm. 
but also like responsible for helping carry the industry forward in the future as well in an exciting way. Um, and we totally realized that coming into the category, we are standing on the shoulders of giants, whether that's Ken Grossman, Jim Cook, or any number of great crap breweries that came before us, or breweries for that matter. I, I mean, the macro brewers did a huge part in putting beer on the map in America. Of course. Um, and we know that, you know, I could say I love citrus cacao IPAs all I want, but we would not be able to sell a single one of them had craft beer not been like well socialized and taught. And like we're for sure doing our part in marketing, but like a lot of people have built that up and the awareness and the knowledge before us, and we're incredibly thankful of it. Our our job really is to steward that forward in into the future, um, you know, try to bring a whole new bunch of people into the category, make it safe, exciting. We think we're looking at generational unlock of occasion growth, which is probably the first occasion growth beverage alcohol has had in decades. Um, so we we think we can really unlock a lot of growth, and we're trying to do it in a positive some way. Um, John and the brewing quality teams have been doing a great job of interacting with the BA and sharing information forward that way. I helped form the Adult Non-Alcoholic Beverage Association, ANBA, and we're trying to share learnings with both smaller brands coming behind, but also working with government agencies to kind of protect the future of this category um, and make sure the regulatory landscape is clear for it. So um, in many ways, it looks a lot like what craft beer did, call it 30 years ago, mm -hmm. um, 35 years ago. And so working with a lot of the same players to like open up the future of that um, – but, yeah, we're trying to think of it as a very positive some way where, you know, I keep going back to the the stat I always say is that people are not drinking alcohol 99% of the time they're awake. And that is a lot of time that they could potentially be drinking beer that they're not drinking beer and a lot of people too. So we're really committed to marketing the category and growing it. And we know there's going to be a lot of opportunity for a lot of brands to join in. Right on. What about, and I, that was a fair answer. I think what I was trying to get at, and maybe I sort of stumbled over the question, was if I drink a bad non-alcoholic beer, not from Athletic, I'm not saying that you guys you know, make tainted beer, but let's say that there's another brand out there that's putting out bad beer, there's a chance I get really sick. And there's a chance that I don't – I say non-alcoholic craft beer is bad for me. I, I Last time I drank one of those, I got sick. In other words, like there's, it seems to me that there's more of a danger for, because we saw this happen in craft brewing on the alcoholic side thing too, right? Like the, um, the first boom sort of has a flop or has a slump in part because a lot of bad beer floods into the market and people just kind of get turned off to the segment in the, the late nineties, early two thousands, right? That's bad enough. And it was something that took the industry a little bit of time to sort of retrench and get its bearings. Um, but that's without any of the, uh, you know, like higher order, uh, uh, consequences of, you know, potentially having people drink bad product and get seriously ill from it. And it strikes me as something that presents a unique challenge for non-alcoholic, brand like athletic that's done so much to steward the category as it becomes more popular as there's growth in this subsegment in a way that there's not really growth in much of the beer industry right now more players want to be a part of it and and it's challenging to make sure that everyone's adhering to the same quality standards do you see what i'm getting at there yeah i i honestly i don't think that's an issue unique to beer mm. you know that's juice that's ice cream 
that's nuts in a bag. That's any food product that you can get in a grocery store. Because yeah, yeah. that if processes aren't followed and compliance isn't maintained, there's risk in anything and everything that you consume, like period. And so that's where, you know, to Bill's point, like the best we can do, because I honestly think, you know, the brewing industry isn't filled with nefarious players. Like, you know, we can go to AMBA, we can work with the BA and help educate brewers. And, you know, if nothing else, I know that the craft brewing community and brewing in general is always receptive to learning. That's what drew me to it in the first place. And so as long as we're out there sharing those things that we can share about food safety and, you know, how to develop a food safety plan, you know, what the resources are in terms of government from the FDA um, and the TTB are, you know, I think we'll all be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, no, I don't think there's a lot of nefarious characters in the beer industry. Frankly, as someone who covers the beer industry, I, sometimes I wish there were more nefarious characters. It'd be more, it's a little <laughs> bit more fun to write about uh, the occasional villain, but they're they're fairly hard to come by in this space. Uh, so you and I are in agreement there. Uh, guys, you've gone the distance here. We're just coming up on uh, on an hour. I, you have time for one more question before we we wrap? Just as sort of a reflection. Yeah, yeah for sure. Great. Um, so. You know, in 2017, you guys start tinkering, you know, you you start producing in earnest uh, in a commercial sense, in, you know, by summer of 2018, um, by 2019, you know, you're uh, that's when I think I first crossed paths with you guys. Uh, I wrote a story about you guys when I was still filing uh, pieces for Thrillist, um, wrote a story about you guys then. You've only gone on to have more success. I joke and I mean it in good fun. Uh, every six months or so you guys are getting better and better press and they're doing the athletic story and it's a hell of a story. And it's a story that we've gone through today. Uh, but it's just been a tremendous sort of ride for you to this point. Um, in that time we've seen, you know, sort of the rise of sort of, you know, wellness and better for you options have really come on strong as dominant trends in, you know, food and beverage generally. And then in, in beverage alcohol in particular, um, you guys have benefited from that. You've benefited from the ubiquity of dry January, which, you know, comes on strong. It comes from the UK and makes its way over here last decade and goes from kind of a little niche thing into a bona fide, you know, sort of event every year, right? Like that's benefited you as well. There's a lot of, you guys have executed. I don't want to take that away from you. Of course. Um, you guys, you know, athletic has been in the right place at the right time. And then you guys have gone out and done what you needed to do to bring non-alcoholic craft beer to people. I wanted to just give you guys an opportunity to reflect on the journey that you guys have had so far and maybe talk a little bit about where you hope that it goes next. You're already having all this success. You're already doing all this growth. I mean, what, what is success for you guys look like for both the brand and for the non-alcoholic uh, craft beer segment? Yeah. That moment you recognize you, uh, the article you referenced, Dave, that you first wrote, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember exactly where I was when we talked. I was on the road in California doing, on a sampling trip, and I was like, this guy gets it. <laughs> and I was so psyched when You're that article kind. came yeah. out. It was, it was something like, <laughs> behind athletic brewing, the, the brewery finally making non-alcoholic beer cool. Yeah, yeah. And when that article hit, it was like, this is exactly what we've been trying to do. Oh, thank and, you. Very um, kind. So thank you so much for your support and Vine Pairs all along the journey. It's uh, 
Um, we really appreciate it. And, um, you know, without people talking about athletic brewing and helping us get the awareness, um, it's a big part of where we've come. Um, yeah, in terms of where we're going, um, you know, we're still doing a lot of the things that have gotten us to this point. Um, you know, we, we have a team that's working really hard and just doing a lot of the small things over and over every day. Um, you know, you're not going to see us out there buying Super Bowl ads and like forgetting that we are a like face to face brand. Um, <laughs> you know, th I think three out of the last five weekends I've been sampling at events, um, which is really just like trying to get stay in touch with the roots and the customer and not losing touch. Um, but I, I think we're really just doing what we want to be doing. Um, and while it feels like we've come a long way, really like nobody out there knows who athletic brewing is. We have such light distribution. So there, there's just still so much more to go. And like how we measure success isn't, it's not like, hitting an annual plan or some arbitrary revenue milepost or something like that. It's, it's giving our teammates great jobs that they can depend on great benefits for their family. Um, year after year, it's being good stewards of this industry. Um, loving what we do, you know, challenging each other, having fun, what we're doing, but then making sure our beers are the best part of our customers day. Every time they drink them, you know, beer is expensive these days. And if someone's going to crack a, $2 beer at home that has our name on it. We want it to be like the best part of their day. Um, so I, I think our goals are still genuinely pretty simple and we're just super lucky to have a great group of teammates around us. Not, yeah, not, not much to add there. Just that I'm excited to see what the perception is in 10, 15 years when non-alcoholic beer has had a chance to, you know, be in our history for a minute yeah. and see how it's perceived in the bars and, you know, People are drinking it freely. The, the content of alcohol is irrelevant. And yeah, it'll, it'll be an interesting societal change. Do you believe that that's actually yeah. something that we're going to see? I mean, obviously, that would be, it would be great for Athletic and for other brands in the space. Is that something that you guys can really envision? Yes. Well, yeah, when we got going, as you referenced, like there was the, the brown one and the green one and the blue one. <laughs> right, um, right. But like not a name brand in the category at all, yep. or at least for good reasons. Um, and there were maybe six to 10 SKUs in the category. Um, now, like, of course you have athletic, but we're not delusional enough to say our brands are as well known as like Heineken, Guinness, Bud, Stella, sure. Peroni, Corona. Um, you have two roads down the street, Sam Adams, Lagunitas, Brooklyn. Um, you're going to have Sierra Nevada this year, Blue Moon this year. You know, everyone has their flagship in this category now, um, which is – so now when people open up a menu and look at the list of non-alcoholic beers, they should know exactly what they're getting because they know all the brands. Um, and, you know, we have a generation now who's coming of age who can get as good options non-alcoholic as alcoholic for the first time mm. ever too. So it, it's going to be so interesting to see how it plays out. And, um, yeah, we're we're confident it's going to be more than 1% of beer. We don't know how much more, but it's going to be exciting to see in the next 10 years. And listener, don't forget that uh, we're talking about we started when we started this conversation, 0.3% of beer. So 1% may not sound like a lot to you. It would be a tremendous amount to 
the American beer industry, and of course to athletic brewing uh, as a big part of it in the non-alcoholic space. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us here on Tap Lines. It's been a pleasure. Congratulations on the new 900 uh, barrel uh, uh, tanks that you guys are putting in and all your success, and thanks for taking us down memory lane uh, to learn a little bit about uh, where non-alcoholic craft beer came from in, uh, in this country. We appreciate it, and you're welcome back anytime. Thanks for all the support. Thank you so much, Dave. Yeah, really appreciate your support. Hell yeah. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Ferrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, managing editor Tim McCurdy, and art director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.